Well, we do want to open our Bibles together, and I want to encourage you to open your Bible to John chapter 5. We are slowly making our way through the Gospel of John, and I'll just say it has been a great joy for me uh, to be able to open up God's Word each week and then to share with you what I've discovered in uh, whatever passage it is that is before us on a given Sunday, and this week is no exception. So last week, we were at the end of John 4, and I told you there that there is no single profile for those who are drawn to Jesus. And we looked at the stories, or I told you the fact that, you know, you had individuals as diverse as Nicodemus, who was a high-ranking or highly respected religious leader. You had the Samaritan woman, who was a woman from the wrong side of tracks, who had, you know, a troubled past. And then you had the the royal official at the end of John 4, who is a high-ranking secular official. And all of them were drawn to Jesus. Now, when we come to John chapter 5, we're going to meet a man who is paralyzed and has been in his condition for a long time, and we could just add him to the list of those diverse people who are drawn to Jesus. But I think we actually see something else in John chapter 5, and it's something we've been seeing all through John's gospel if we have been paying attention. And part of what struck me this week is that Jesus doesn't fit into the profile or the portrait that most people, including many Christians, have for him. I think Jesus would fail most pastoral ministry classes offered by most seminaries today. He didn't have that sort of middle of the road, I'm just trying not to rock the boat approach to ministry. We've already encountered some examples of this in the Gospel of John. So you might remember in the middle of a wedding celebration, his mom comes to him and asks him to do something about the shortage of wine. And he says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? I mean, not the best tact, not the approach you might take with your own mother or someone who made a request of you. We move from that story to him walking into the temple in Jerusalem, flipping over tables, making a whip, and driving people out of the temple. Last week, we looked at this man who approaches Jesus and says to him, can you please come down and heal my son? And Jesus' initial response is, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Later on in the Gospel of John, we're going to read about Jesus' friend Lazarus falling deathly ill. And when word is sent to Jesus about it, we read this. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now look, Jesus has his reasons for doing and saying all of these things. But one thing that becomes clear is that Jesus wasn't super concerned with public perception about him. He wasn't afraid of controversy And at times, he seemed to provoke it. Some of you will find that last sentence hard to believe. And the cure for that is to actually read the Gospels, including the passage we're looking at here in John chapter 5. So we're going to read John 5, beginning at verse 1 and going to verse 18. This is God's Word, and this is what it says. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. 
In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. So when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, is it, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, this is another of Jesus' miracle stories, and I'm going to walk you through it under four headings or four categories. The first thing we see is a sad and strange situation. So John gives us the setting in verses 2 and 3, tells us where this took place and what was going on. And he says, now there, was, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which have, has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So John tells us this event took place near the sheep gate. If it's the same sheep gate that is referenced in the book of Nehemiah, it means that this took place near a small opening in the north wall of the city of Jerusalem. And these five colonnades were these little covered porch areas, and the covered areas gave some shelter to the individuals who gathered there. Now, just as an aside, archaeologists have actually excavated this area in recent years. They dug up the five colonnades along with the pool. They're actually two pools. And I say that just because not too long ago, when liberal scholars, it wasn't too long ago, liberal scholars used to say, well, we don't have any evidence that these pools or these colonnades existed. Well, now we do. But in any case, those who gathered under these colonnades are described as invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And this is a sad scene. If you've ever traveled to maybe a resort area somewhere, then you will know that that resort area, it's a beautiful place, it's pristine, you've got everything you could possibly imagine. But often, just outside of the resort area, you will find a collection of people who are not doing so well. They're in a bad way. They might be homeless. They might have physical ailments. They might have mental health issues. That's the kind of scene we have here. And the sadness of this scene was compounded by the description of the man that we're given in verse 5. And it says, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So here was a man who was not only suffering 
but one who had been suffering for a long, long time. Now, I said it was a sad and strange situation. So let me tell you the strange part. Uh, Look at verse 4. Like, look at your Bible and look at verse 4. Are you looking at it? Well, unless you have a King James Bible, you will discover that there is no verse 4, right? That's strange, isn't it? So what happened to verse 4? Well, you might have a footnote in your Bible that says something like this. Some manuscripts insert, wholly or in part, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So you see what I mean about this being a strange situation, right? So let me just try to explain this as best I can. First of all, we should remember that there were no chapter or verse headings in Bibles until the 13th century. So there was no verse 1 or 2 or 3 or 4 until then. And modern translations jump from verse 3 to verse 5 as sort of a way of telling you there is an extra sentence that some manuscripts have. But verse 4, the footnoted verse that I read for you, is not in the earliest and the best manuscripts of the New Testament. And what most scholars think happened is that it was added somewhere along the way to fill in some missing knowledge. Because when you read from verse 3 to 5, there's sort of something there. You're wondering what exactly is going on. Or look at verse 7. This is the man's explanation. This is the man's answer to Jesus' question. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So that was the man's answer to the question, do you want to be healed? It doesn't really make any sense about the water and the stirring of it without the additional information of verse 4. On its own, verse 7 is puzzling. What does it mean that there's no one to put him in the water when it gets stirred up? What does that have to do with wanting to be healed or not? So all the best evidence tells us that verse 4 is not scripture. We shouldn't treat it as such. What it does do is provide some background information on what was probably a common belief at the time. Why is it that all of these individuals who were in such a bad way gathered in this place by the pool? Well, it was because they believed that the water had some kind of healing properties when it bubbled up at various times throughout the year. That's why I said that this is a sad and strange situation. The best hope that these individuals had in the midst of their suffering was superstition. The hopes that this water would bubble up, they could get into it, and they could be healed. So we see a sad and strange situation here. We also see a simple but surprising question. And this comes from verse 6. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? Now, on the one hand, it's just a simple, straightforward question. 
but let's be honest. If anyone other than Jesus were asking this man that question, we would think, well, that's a dumb question. I mean, the guy has been in this condition for 38 years. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Now, maybe there's a psychological reason that Jesus asks that question. It's been suggested by some that in addition to the man's physical condition, he also seemed to suffer from victimitis. So Jesus asked him a direct question, but his answer is anything but direct. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. And when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Is that a yes or a no? Well, it's not totally clear, but there might be some of that going on. I mentioned last week that one thing that draws many people to Jesus is their desperation, but not everyone who is in a desperate situation wants to change. There are some people who wallow in self-pity. Now, whether there was a connection between this man's sickness and sin is something we'll explore in a bit, but he does seem to be quick to pass the blame, doesn't he? When the Pharisees accost him for carrying his mat... He blames the man who healed him. Now, again, we can't say with certainty this was the man's problem, but it is true for some. They might say they want to be made well, but they don't really want to give up their victimhood. There's a kind of comfort that comes from it. That can be true. But I think there might be a deeper spiritual reason that Jesus asked this question. You know, pretty much all of the encounters that Jesus has had with people up to this point in the Gospel of John have really functioned on two different levels, the physical level and the spiritual level. I'm not trying to be a dualist and say those things are not connected in any way. Here's, Here's what I mean. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, what, you mean like go back inside my mother's womb and and go through that whole process again? How is that possible? Jesus has this encounter with the woman at the well, and he tells her, look, I've got living water for you. And she says, well, I mean, how is that possible? You don't even have a bucket. Where are you going to get this water from? And then Jesus' disciples come back, and they've got this food that they were sent out to get. And and Jesus says, look, I'm not hungry. And they say, what what does he mean he's not hungry? And Jesus says, well, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And they're completely dumbfounded. What does he mean? Who brought him food? So Jesus is talking up here, and they're all thinking down here. And I think something like that might be going on with this man as well. Do you want to be healed is what Jesus says to the man. And he says, oh, I don't have anyone to put me in the water when it bubbles up. But I think Jesus is actually talking about something deeper than that. Now, we'll come back to it in a minute, but I think Jesus is talking about wholeness and not just physical healing. But let's think about the healing for now, because the third thing we see here is a sudden Sabbath day healing. You like all the S's, right? The suddenness of this miracle is somewhat startling. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And unlike many of the other individuals we read 
read about in the Gospels, the man doesn't express some kind of great faith. He doesn't really even seem to express any faith. And notice what Jesus says to the man in verse 8. He says, oh, I'll tell you what, I will stay with you here by the pool. And when the water starts bubbling, I'm going to help you get into the pool before anyone else does. That's not what he says. What he says is, get up, take up your mat or your bed and walk. Now, remember, this guy has been in this condition for 38 years. 38 years of lying on a mat, needing to be carried wherever he went. And in an instant, with just a word, Jesus heals him. Now, technically, it wasn't just a word. It was a sentence. Get up, take up your bed and walk. But why did Jesus say this? Why does he tell him to take up his bed and walk? Well, maybe part of it was because it would be an obvious demonstration to everyone watching that this was a complete miracle. I mean, this wasn't like an individual who's suffering from chronic back pain and, and, you know, Jesus touches him and he's like, yeah, I, I think it sort of feels better. This is a man who's been in this condition for 38 years. And if he had been in that condition that long, everyone would know who he is. And when they see him walking around, carrying his mat, they would know, wow, he's been healed. But I think there's more to it than that. Why does Jesus say, get up, take up your bed and walk? Well, the answer comes in verse 9. And at once, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the day Jesus did this miracle was a Sabbath day. Why was that significant? Well, notice what happens next in verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. A couple of things to note about that. The first is the simple reminder that Jesus was not into conflict avoidance. He didn't shy away from controversy. He knew full well that this man carrying around his mat would cause the religious leaders to be scandalized. Connected to that is something else we ought to understand, which is that Jesus was constantly exposing the ridiculous of the man-made rules and traditions. Now, to be clear, Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath. He was not encouraging the man to break the Sabbath. What he was doing was challenging all of the man-made traditions and rules that had grown around the Sabbath. So I've referred to it before, but you had God's law... And then you had something that's called the Mishnah, which was the interpretation or the expansion of God's law. So in the Mishnah, there were 39 different categories or classifications regarding work. One of those 39 categories was about carrying an object from one place to another. And it specified what you could and could not carry from one place to another in order not to violate the Sabbath, or in order not to work. You were actually allowed to carry someone on a mat 
but you were not allowed to carry a mat yourself. That was one of the rules or the laws that they had come up with. So when the Pharisees see this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years carrying his mat, they're upset about it. And Jesus is exposing their hearts. And sometimes you need to provoke people in order to do that. This is not the only time Jesus does something like this. I mentioned it last week, but when we come to John chapter 9, we're going to see Jesus heal a blind man. But he heals that blind man in a very distinct way. Right? He spits on the ground, he mixes that spit with the, the dirt of the ground, and he makes mud, and then he applies that mud to the blind man's eyes, and he is healed. And when the Pharisees see it, they are livid, Because they can't see the miracle. All they can see is what they think is a violation of the Sabbath. Jesus made mud. And Jesus did this on many occasions. Pretty much all of Matthew chapter 12 is taken up with this theme. I'm going to read a good chunk of it for you so you can see it for yourself. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did? When he and his companions were hungry, he entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law and the prophets... That the priests on the Sabbath day in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then it says, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. See, Jesus is provoking them. He's really exposing their hearts. And sometimes the relationship we have with authority and rules is a complex one. Jesus helps us understand we ought to weigh some rules against other commands. Haven't you read the law, he says? We ought to begin from a point of compassion. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And we ought to use our common sense. Which one of you, if he has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not bring it out? Of course you will. So I look back on an experience I had in Bible college with some shame. The college I attended had some really well-intended rules about PDAs, public displays of affection between guys and girls. There were about 700 students. We had chapels every morning, Monday to Friday. And at the end of one of those chapels, I saw a girl from my home church. She was clearly upset about something. She began sobbing told me that her boyfriend had broken up with her and what she really needed was a hug. And as she hugged me and kind of cried on my shoulder, I was like, hey, I I don't think you should be hugging me here in the chapel. I mean, because of the rules, right? 
Mr. Compassion, I know. Now look, we never set aside God's law because of compassion, but man's rules are something different. And Jesus is exposing all of that here. He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And he knows the religious leaders will not be pleased. So here in John 5, we read about a sad and strange situation. We read about a simple but surprising question. We read about a sudden Sabbath day healing. And lastly, we read about a selfish and scandalized response. I'm amazed with how much happens in this short passage. The story does not end with this man being healed and just going on his merry way. The story reveals something about this man. The story leads to a conflict or controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders. So let's start with the man. The religious leaders confront the man about carrying his mat or his bed in verse 11. And then he says this, or it says this, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, maybe he's just trying to save his own skin. He doesn't, he doesn't want any trouble with the religious leaders. But it seems like he thinks, look, if anyone should be in trouble for me carrying my mat around, it should be the guy who healed me. And when they question him further, he says he doesn't know the name of the man. But then later, Jesus finds him in the temple area and has a further conversation with him. And we read this in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. It's a super interesting verse for lots of reasons. I mean, it's interesting that Jesus found the man. The man didn't find him. But it's also interesting because it raises a question. Was this man's condition the result of direct sin? Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The more pressing question for us might be, what is the relationship between sin and sickness? Is there one? Well, the Bible's answer to that question is yes and no. So again, when we come to John 9, that question will be addressed directly in the healing of the blind man. In John 9, verse 2, it says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth... His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, we'll get into why the disciples thought he could have sinned before being born uh, when we get to John 9. But you can see their worldview and their question, right? There must be a connection between sin and sickness. This guy's in this condition. It must be the result of direct sin. And Jesus answers that question by saying, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So it's pretty clear that we should not automatically try to establish a connection between sin and sickness or sin and suffering. But while we shouldn't automatically try to make such a connection, we shouldn't automatically dismiss it either. I mean, Jesus seems to make the connection here. Look, Go and sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. We see this elsewhere in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11, 
gives us instructions about the partaking of the Lord's Supper. And part of those instructions say this. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And then Paul says, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So wait, you mean that God actually disciplined those who partook of communion in an unworthy manner? And some of that discipline resulted in in sickness or even in death. Yes. James gives instructions to the church about how to pray for the sick. And he says this, is any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up if they have sinned. They will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So this doesn't mean there's always a connection, but sometimes there is. So what about this man? Was his condition caused by direct sin in his life? Well, I don't know that we can answer that question definitively, but I think there's actually a deeper truth for us to understand based on what Jesus says to him. Now, there were a couple of sort of current event-type stories in the first century that Jesus spoke directly to. In Luke chapter 13, we read about them. It says this, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. See, the lesson Jesus wanted his hearers to understand was that whatever the cause of sickness or suffering in our lives, we ought to be prepared to repent so that we do not perish in an eternal sense. And that's what Jesus was saying to this man. Go and sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. See, the most important thing for this man to understand, or the most important thing for this man, was not the cure of his paralysis. The most important thing in the life of this man was his relationship with God. We can think of Jesus' question to the man again. Do you want to be healed? Did he? I mean, did he really want to be healed? Like all the way through. All indications are that the man was more interested in Jesus as healer than Jesus as Lord. See, unlike many of those who received a healing touch from Jesus, we can describe this man as healed, but not whole. 
And this is true of many people. They want the gift, but not a relationship with the giver. They want the kingdom, but they don't want to submit to the king. Kevin DeYoung says it this way, we'll take a skilled surgeon over a suffering savior. And that is true for many. They want the healing, but not the wholeness. Lots of people relate to God the way narcissistic teenagers relate to their parents. I mean, they're happy to empty the fridge. They're happy to raid the pantry. They're happy for a warm place to sleep. But they're not very interested in a relationship. I told you this before, but there are two types of people in the world. There are dog people and there are cat people. Right? The dog people look at their owners. They say, you love me. You feed me. You take care of me. You must be God. Cats look at their owners and say, you love me, you feed me, you take care of me. I must be God. So which one are you? Well, this man was a cat person. And I don't think I'm being too hard on him. Jesus heals him from 38 years of lameness. There's no expression of praise. There's no expression of thanksgiving. Jesus finds him afterwards, tells him, sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. And notice the man's response in verse 16. The man went away, or in verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So the man got the healing that he wanted. Now the thing he seems most interested in is ingratiating himself with the religious leaders. That is a selfish response to the work of Jesus. You get out of Jesus what you want and you leave the rest. So you'll take the blessings, but you have no interest in the suffering. I'll take Jesus as life coach, Jesus as healer, but not Jesus as Lord. Right? Two out of three Ain't bad. We see the scandalized response on the part of the religious leaders. And verses 16 to 18 mark the turning point in John's gospel. It says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, the religious leaders could not get past their Sabbath day regulations. They couldn't see the healing. They couldn't recognize Jesus' wisdom or his goodness or his power. What they could recognize was the threat to authority that Jesus posed. And Jesus answers their question in a brilliant but provocative way. My father is working until now, and I am working. And the religious leaders were triggered by this because they understood the implications of Jesus' words more than most people do. I mean, it's common to hear things like, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. The sentiment seems to be that Jesus was killed for being some sort of cultural revolutionary. It's because he was so inclusive or loving or such a free spirit. 
Make no mistake, the reason Jesus was crucified is because he said things and did things that demonstrated his deity. He claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. He said he was Lord of the Sabbath. Had Jesus just been a healer or teacher or life coach, no one would be upset. But the thing that becomes clear when we actually read the account of Jesus' life as it's recorded for us in the Gospels is that we come to Jesus on his terms, not ours. It's not enough to come like this man and accept healing from Jesus but not submit to his lordship. Neither can we respond like the religious leaders and be scandalized by his claims. The proper response to Jesus is to submit to him. This man was healed but not whole. What about you? What is your response to Jesus? There's a great story that illustrates the difference between healing and wholeness in Luke chapter 17, and I'll close with this. It says, now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well, or your faith has made you whole. It's the difference between healing and wholeness. So as you think about those implications, let me pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We sometimes have our own perceptions, ideas of what Jesus was like or what we might want him to be like. And we thank you for the Gospels that remind us of who he is and what he's done. And Lord, as we come, we don't want to be ungrateful in any way. We don't want to be like those who experience healing but are not made whole. We don't want to be like those who do not return thanks to you or give our lives as a response to your gift to us. And so, God, I pray you would stir in our hearts the affection that we ought to have for you and that we would live that out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.